Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Administrative Static. I'm John Vecchione. I'm here with Mark Chenoweth. And uh, we start uh, the program today with uh, a man who's no stranger to the news, uh, Elon Musk. And the reason uh, is that he is trying to get out of uh, what he calls a government-imposed muzzle uh, by the Securities Exchange Commission. And as we have said on this program uh, many times, we've talked about it, the SEC, almost alone amongst agencies, requires when you settle with them that you pledge in blood that you will never speak of this case again and or, or say that the SEC was wrong in any way about it. You will never disclaim that you were, you know, uh, uh, what happened. You can't write a book about it. Um, and so... Uh, and, and uh, you know, this is this is a huge muzzling of speech because oftentimes uh, you have a disagreement with the SEC about the nature of it, but you want to get it behind you and you'd rather pay a few bucks and then go on, along your merry way, but then you can never talk about it again. And uh, no other agency, except I think commodity, commodities futures trading, but other than that, no one does this. And the SEC does it. And because there's a legal principle that it's an agreement, once you enter a, a settlement agreement, it's like a contract, so it can be enforced. So it has been very difficult um, to get out of these. And this case is particularly interesting because a private company, uh, a private organization representing shareholders, brought a suit against Elon uh, saying that his tweets that he had financing um, for one of his companies um, was false. And Elon took the stand and the jury didn't believe that it was false. They believed that he believed it was true. And uh, even though even though uh, the judge had already found that the statement was false, he didn't have the mens rea uh, that he thought it was false is how I think the case fell out. So he's saying that, look, I just got out of a jury trial on this and they're costing me all this money because every time I tweet, I have to get it run by the Tesla people. I had to leave the board, the, the chairmanship of Tesla. I have to have all my tweets pass through Tesla uh, lawyers. And um, and then you subpoena me every time I tweet. So apparently the SEC is subpoenaing him about what he meant about this, that, and the other thing in his tweets. And you can see how this would chill. He says it chills his speech. Mark, I'm not so sure it chills Elon's speech. I'm not sure that's a provable fact. Um, for for reasons that I've read his tweets, it certainly but, hassles his speech. Yes, correct, correct. Um, and and the fact is that uh, we we've, we've looked at this quite a bit, and even years later, ten fifty, they say, oh well, you know, you have to go back to the same judge and you have to ask for modification, and they say, no, you agreed to it. That's part of it. So um, Elon 
is has a lot of heavy hitters. The lower court has ruled against him, but he's before the Second Circuit now. And as we have, uh, our, our colleague Peggy Little has gotten some pretty good language out of the Fifth Circuit, but they also allowed these gags to stand, saying that they're terrible. Uh, but because this principle and that principle, some that I've mentioned, uh, nothing can be done about it. And um, it is, it is uh, in his case, he's got a little bit of a problem, I think, Mark, in that the original deal was 2018, and then he reaffirmed it in 2019 after they looked into something about Tesla. So he agreed twice pretty recently, uh, as law goes, you know, three, three, four years ago. It seems like a long time, but in law, eh. So um, the, the uh, you know, the, the claim is, is that this inhibits and chills Mr. Musk's lawful speech. And I think it does, and I think it's intended to. And unfortunately, the courts keep saying that's okay. There has to be some way, Mark, to say that the government isn't allowed to do this as part of its powers, as no part of the government's powers is to muzzle the speech of Americans. But the the principle is, is that in this area, the government's allowed to make contracts the same as everybody else. But, uh, you know, I Mark, I think this is a little bit like going around uh, it's a little bit like how they go around in social media, getting social media to do what they can't do. So they have this this separate claim against somebody that they did something wrong um, with the securities laws, and then they're shutting them up about whatever the SEC does to them in the meantime. It, it really is kind of outrageous. I agree with you, John. It's outrageous. The other thing that's interesting to me about this, I don't know if you saw the National Labor Relations Board came out with a ruling this week where they said uh, in the context of of some kind of uh, uh, in the context of some kind of labor agreement that uh, it was uh, sort of per se unlawful to even offer an agreement that would have this kind of a uh, of a gag in it in the in the labor negotiation. That's uh, right. They, they said that it, For severance agreements, I think, or severance. You cannot give a severance agreement that relies on the agreement that you don't say anything bad about the company. And this is this is normally what happens. It, the, it, in two in two ways, you have a dispute with your company. They decide to part ways with you, but they want to give you some some money so you can go get another job and not be too stressed. And, but they don't want you running them down, so they put that in all the time. Sometimes it's mutual because maybe the the employee did something that's uh, that is alleged to have been bad, and they don't want it, a, a disparagement on their side either. So uh, when I saw that, Mark, I was thinking, well, wait a minute. Both sides could be disparaging each other. They're the labor relations board. They're trying to, they should stop friction. The whole point you have a, a, a federal labor relations board is to stop friction. And these agreements stop friction. So I, I thought that was that was somewhat anti-labor in, in some ways. Um, well, it's certainly hypocritical for one government agency to say that for private parties, this is prohibited conduct. Yeah. And then for another government agency to say, well, for the government, this is perfectly allowed. It's required. It's required. It's, required. it's, it's, yes. not, even, it's not even allowed. It's required. Well, uh, and, and and if this were uh, the other thing, John, is in the SEC context, you're talking about the government being one of the parties. So it's a coercive. I mean, if anything, that's a more coercive environment than it is when you have labor and employees negotiating. Yeah, that's true. And the other the other thing about it is the SEC has enormous powers for anyone who's in business. Um, and so, I mean, it, it is extremely coercive. But the other thing is 
it would be one thing if the SEC wasn't allowed to to uh, to disparage you, but they put out their press releases. Yeah, oh, that's right. We got this, and and you know it says, oh, you neither affirmed nor denied, but you know we got all this money from, and it, it's it's ridiculous because it's not even like the labor context I just dis- de- described, where both sides would rather you know get it over with and shut up about it for the rest of their lives. This is the SEC doesn't it puts it up on its website forever. Very um, one-sided. Very one-sided. So I think that um, that it would be nice if, uh, and you know, we do know uh, he's he's represented by uh, by Quinn Emanuel, um, Urquhart Sullivan. And, yes, and competent counsel. Competent counsel, and to say the least. Hopefully, they will find a way around some of these problems we've mentioned, um, because I do think, um, uh, you know, in the in the Second Circuit, um, another. Uh, judge uh, who is the daughter of uh, oh help me Mark Floyd, Floyd Abrams Floyd Abrams right has I written think it's Ronnie is it Ronnie Abrams Ronnie. yeah like that's that. it Ronnie Abrams very good and she has she has just had a scathing she's in the second circuit she's a district court judge there she has a scathing opinion about how bad this stuff is but then she says at the end but there's nothing I can do about it because they all agreed so um, in some way manner or form this thing has to be addressed. Uh, without an agreement and you know uh, or or someone has to say that's not really agreement that it's coercion there's a whole slew of cases that certain things are coercive and against public policy and you can enter a contract that's against public policy uh maybe that's the way to go that the contract's against public policy because we have a first amendment um but here in this case there's it's not just that his speech is being uh infringed he's getting subpoena after subpoena they, well and suffice it to say that the single person who any owner of tesla stock is the most interested in hearing from is elon musk <laughs> so <laughs> uh the, the, the short sellers speech, and the investors all, all everybody right that's right so the fact that his speech is being hassled on this topic is is a problem and you know what that's that's an interesting point mark because in free speech cases the speech of the speaker isn't the only thing. The listener has a right to it. And perhaps that's the way to go. Maybe we get a Elon into a book agreement and then we, we have Brown uh, Little. Uh, or, or, Brown or maybe, Little. Maybe we buy a little bit of Tesla stock and, uh, and then assert our rights as shareholders to hear what he has go. to say. That's good. That's good. Something along those nature, that, that nature. Um, Cause we haven't agreed to it by gum. Um, and and uh, and won't. And so <laughs> and so Damn uh, Skippy. So compliance with this litany of subpoenas has been burdensome and no end appears in sight um, is what he's saying. And that is exactly right. That because that's the whole point of it. They don't want there to be an end in sight. They want it forever. You made it. No, they've agreement. got their hooks in him now. They've got their yeah. hooks in him now. They're not going to turn loose. That's that's right. And um, it's it. it it is an, uh, an appalling situation. And I think the fact that he's the richest man in the world, well, I don't know about today. The market had a, a big hit, but, I, you know, he's he's always up there. He's, he's not hurting for uh, wealth and power. And uh, and that this can can be constraining him and causing him all of this trouble and expense to such an extent that he's he's willing to go fight it um, is really I, I think that sharpens the the. Um, 
the point of how bad it is for regular people caught up with the SEC because they're not going to have this ability to go complain about it and tell everybody it's undone. Anyway, let's hope he wins and we'll be back to the top. Welcome back to Administrative Static. Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchioni with you as always. And and John, I, I wanted to take a minute to talk about uh, proxy advisory firms and the the Securities and Exchange Commission. And people might think that this, this doesn't apply to them. And I assure you, if you own stock, it does. And there, the SEC is uh, in the process of of putting out a rule on uh, proxy advisory firms. And I believe that there are going to be some state attorneys general suing uh, over that. Uh, I, I believe they may have all, by the time this show goes to air, I believe that lawsuit will have already been filed. And we may talk about that next week or or in the upcoming weeks. But I thought before we did that, John, it might make sense just to sort of acquaint our audience with the topic more generally, because you really need to know uh, what's going on here in order to uh, you know, have an ability to understand the rule. And what this boils down to is if you are a shareholder, then periodically there will be votes that are put in front of the the shareholders on various sorts of corporate policies. And those policies can vary widely. It could be something on the CEO's pay, or it could be something about uh, the composition of the board of directors, or it could be something uh, about uh, climate change. There are there are lots of of kinds of issues that come before uh, boards of directors, and sometimes the companies uh, uh, come up with these topics themselves and put them in front of the shareholders, and that's fine. Sometimes the shareholders uh, try to force votes on issues that the company may or may not be interested in having shareholders vote on. And those become uh, battles. They can be contentious, and sometimes they wind up in in federal court. But but setting that to one side, let's just uh, assume that you have a, an issue that's come before the board. Uh, it's either been proposed by the board or it's been been put forward by shareholders, and it's a vote that's going to be on on the ballot. Well, the way that these votes work is that the person who uh, who you know, controls the shares is making the vote. Well, if you are an individual stockholder of, and, I'm, and John, I'm just going to stick with Tesla since we were talking about Tesla in the last segment. If you are an individual stockholder of Tesla and one of these issues comes up, well, then you can vote depending on the number of shares you have. That's the number of votes you have. If you have a thousand shares, then you get a thousand votes that you can cast uh, the for or against the issue that's that's on the ballot, and that works just fine. But suppose, John, that you don't 
directly own the shares of Tesla. Suppose that you own, uh, I'm going to make this up, but suppose that you own a mutual fund that invests in electric car companies. And so what you own are shares in the mutual fund. You don't own individual shares. And perhaps that mutual fund is invested in uh, in Tesla. It would be odd if it weren't. Uh, but it's also invested in several other companies. Uh, but again, uh, you don't you don't actually own the shares yourself, but the fund is a kind of fiduciary uh, for you, and it has to uh, it has to uh, it has certain duties to you as its customer. And one of those duties is that it it's well, there's a question about whether it has to vote the shares at all. That you could imagine a situation where the shares were just left unvoted unless instructions were given uh, by by the shareholder. But uh, what often happens in these situations is that uh, is that the the Vanguard or Fidelity or whoever it is who has issued these uh, these sort of mutual fund uh, or or other kinds of of ownership arrangements, they will vote the shares. And then the question is, well, how can they be assured that the vote that they're casting either for or against the particular shareholder proposal, how can they be assured that they are doing that in fulfillment of their fiduciary duty to you? Well, that's where the SEC uh, came in uh, a while ago, more than a decade ago now, uh, maybe about 15 years ago, but don't hold me to that. And and they they put out sort of a, not a rule, but just some guidance uh, suggesting that if uh, companies that were in this situation relied on the advice of proxy advisory firms, then they would be uh, fulfilling their fiduciary duty. And there are two uh, predominant, and when I say predominant, they control over 95% of the market for proxy advisory services. Uh, one of them is called Institutional Shareholder Services. The other one is called Glass-Lewis. And between these two firms, they, as I say, dominate the market. It's really a duopoly. There's very, very little other competition here. Although uh, I know Vivek Ramaswamy was uh, is trying to create another one. I'm not sure whether his presidential ambitions will cause that to uh, to sink into the background or not. But uh, but for now, there are two uh, two that dominate the market. And so, what what has happened over time, John, is that these proxy advisory services firms have been captured by some of the folks who have a particular agenda on climate change and and other you know kinds of topics so that what you see is the proxy advisory services firms routinely recommend voting a certain way on these kinds of uh, social issue things that come before uh, the, the the shareholders at at different companies and if you are someone who invests in one of these funds and you don't agree with that position, you're you're sort of out of luck the way that that the SEC has structured it now because they have they have essentially insulated your the, the company that owes a fiduciary duty to you has been insulated by the SEC from having to do what you want it to do because it said you don't have to listen to the person who's buying your shares of your mutual fund, for example, you, if as long as you listen to the institutional 
uh, or excuse me, to the proxy advisory firms, then you're good as far as the SEC goes. Well, I think you can see the problem here. There's a this is yet another example where there's a separation between ownership and control, and the people who ought to have a say in what's going on in the company are being shunted to the side. That is, uh, the, the 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 folks who are who I would think of as the real owners and interests, the people who are actually bringing money to the table to invest in these companies are being shunted to the side. These proxy advisory firms are the ones that are being given the power and they are using that power to drive an agenda that may not be consistent with what you as a shareholder want. Well, you would think that the solution to this would be to pull back the guidance that the agency had issued, suggesting that following what the proxy advisory firms suggest uh, is all you have to do. But that's not what the SEC is doing, John. What the SEC is doing is they're working on a rule uh, to sort of more or less make permanent the, uh, uh, the the kind of situation that exists right now. So uh, we'll talk about that in, in greater detail down the road. Uh, but as someone who you and I were talking before the show, John, as someone who wasn't previously familiar with, uh, completely familiar with this. Does that make sense? Is there a piece of this that? Yeah, that, I, did, uh, I had no idea. About? I, I, um, I obviously get proxy uh, uh, questions all the time from individual stocks, but I did not know how mutual funds did it. And I wondered why, you know, how they were, they were able to use, you know, follow this agenda or that agenda. I assure you that if they were recommending that, um, you know, the, the best thing to do was always vote for the fossil fuel investment for the mutual funds that the SEC would be moving in a different direction. I have a feeling. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Suppose that, that that were the way that it were were, were going or su- suppose that they uh, uh, suppose that they were always suggesting that the board of directors act uh, in order to increase the profit of shareholders and not pay attention to other stakeholder interests. I think that would also not go over with today's uh, SEC, uh, even though uh, under traditional understandings of of how corporations work, uh, profit from uh, increasing the profit of the shareholder is supposed to be what the company is doing, and not so much paying attention to these these other uh, so called stakeholders. Um, but you see what what uh, what happens when you allow. Oh, well, and and I guess what I was going to say, John, back to your point, I get these sometimes these these things sometimes too do you vote them when they come to you or do you just I, let them i, I ignore sometimes them? do but often since i don't know i i merely uh am a uh you know i'm a i i don't vote yes or no i just vote present uh, yeah I, I always i will say this i always vote for the accounting firm to 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 to, to audit the whole thing to take a to take a closer look at something <laughs> whenever they ask should an audit firm look at this i always check yes Check yes. Check yes on that. Uh, well, and and the thing that I usually do, so sometimes when you get these things, it'll indicate whether it's been recommended by the board of directors or not. And uh, my most common response is to ignore it and not cast my vote. My second most common response is to just see what the board of directors is suggesting and go along with what the board of directors wants, because I figure they're the ones in the best position to manage the corporation. I really am not a big believer in outsiders coming in if you're an outsider and you want to change the way the company is managed, then buy the company. I don't. I don't believe in this sort of uh, efforts from from people who don't own very many shares of stock. They just bought a few shares and now they're trying to 
to force a change on the way that the, the company behaves. So you have, uh, you, know, you have famously the board of directors of Exxon was infiltrated with some anti-oil people after a shareholder vote. Well, that's absurd. If you want to invest in a company that doesn't drill oil, there are thousands of those companies out there. Exxon is not one of them. <laughs> so, so don't vote on that one, uh, or don't don't buy that one, uh, or at least. Uh, you know, you you should have to own a majority of it if you're going to change the way that that the company's doing business. You shouldn't be able to force these things through this sort of backhanded way of taking control over shareholder votes through the proxy advisory firms like ISS and and Glass Lewis. The um, uh, and, and and maybe we'll just leave it for there, John, and we'll talk more about the specific rule on another occasion. 